We're in our second week of uh, Foundations, you can probably see from behind me, and um, what we're doing is we're seeking to build a, a solid, strong, biblical foundation, not only in our life individually, in our family's life, um, but also in the life of this church, to be um, biblically sound in what the Word of God reveals to us. And so last week we turned our attention uh, to focusing on God, and this week we're going to turn our attention to focusing on Jesus. Our theme passage for this week, and I'll, I'll probably mention as we go through this series, comes out of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 7. It's the very end of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus um, begins talking about the wise and foolish builders and how the wise builder and the foolish builder both hear the Word of God. And so as we gather in this moment, we all are given the opportunity to hear the Word of God. But what separates the two is the wise builder not only hears the Word of God, but applies it and responds to it. He does it. Whereas the foolish builder hears it and just goes about his own business. Um, as we come, every time we gather in the house of the Lord, every time we open the Word of God, this is what we are faced with. Are we going to not only hear what God is speaking to our hearts, but are we going to respond to it? Are we going to apply it? Are we going to do it? James tells us in James chapter 1 and verses 22 through 25 that, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is what we're faced with in this moment. To not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. To, to respond to what our Heavenly Father, who loves us dearly, as we've been singing about, is calling us and inviting us to do in our life, to glorify Him. We spent last week looking at one verse in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth to come to this understanding, this foundation, that God created all things by His power, by His knowledge, and it also reveal, reveals God's love for you and me, that He provided everything that we would need in this life and into eternity at the very beginning of time. God, you were on God's mind. I was on God's mind. That's how much He loves us. And we need to have that understanding that everything around us, when we go out in the world today, even though we can get distracted by everything, God is screaming in His creation from the heavens to grab our attention and invite us closer into this love relationship we have with Him. Today we're going to shift our attention to the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles with you or your tablets or phones or whatever you use to, to look through the Word of God, we're going to be in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, and we once again are going to focus or hone in on one verse in the Gospel of John, uh, verse 29. Um, now, we spent six weeks uh, looking at Christ and understanding who Christ is in this doctrine. And so as I was preparing for this particular Sunday and this foundation of Jesus, I was kind of thinking, you know, what can we add to that? But in reality, we barely scratched the surface of the glory of Jesus Christ and who He is and what He did for us. We could spend all day today, we won't, don't panic, but we could spend all day today and all this week just gathering and looking at what Scripture says about Jesus Christ and still only scratch the surface of His complete glory. 
And so this morning, as, as we seek out to answer the question, who is Jesus, we're going to use this one verse that comes from the, the, the prophet John, also known as John the Baptist. And what he exclaimed about Jesus Christ is he showed up on the shores of the Jordan River. So you're going to read with me in verse 29. The word of the Lord says, The next day when he, he is referring to John the Baptist, real quick, John was not a Southern American general, free will, or independent Baptist. Um, He was a Jewish individual. He was called a Baptist because he baptized. Um, But he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, to understand what is going on, I want us to gather a little bit of context to to get this whole picture of what is going on just for John. But for those who are on the shores of the Jordan, it has been about 400 years since the last prophet has appeared in Israel. The book of Malachi is the last recorded prophet of the Old Testament. He's also the last prophet whom God sent to the nation of Israel to call them to this time of repentance. John shows up 400 plus years later on the shores of the Jordan River, dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts, and calling for a national repentance. Repent means to to turn. You're going one direction and you turn. More importantly, you turn to God's ways. And so God, or John's calling out for this repentance. And as he's out there, people are catching wind of this. Now, keep in mind, there hasn't been a prophet in 400 years. They haven't had a prophetic message from the heavens in 400 years. And so people are coming out from Jerusalem, Judea, and all the surrounding areas to come to this place in the wilderness to hear what this this messenger, John, has to say. More importantly, John is trying to prepare the people, the hearts of the Jewish people, to Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah that is going to show up. And as we jump here in chapter 1, what we find is that day has come. But notice when Jesus finally shows up in chapter uh, 1 and verse 29, John doesn't just say, oh, finally you're here. He doesn't say, well, that's him right there. But the word behold is is exclamation because it means that. Look! Did you see that? Behold! Now when John makes this statement, What is going to have to happen to everyone who's gathered to come hear John preach, when he says, behold, what are the people going to have to do? Look at that. What do you have to do? You've got to respond, right? You can be one of those strange people in the crowd that just kind of, I'm not not falling for that one. But you've got to respond. And so John's not only calling people to respond spiritually with repentance, but to respond physically in turning their eyes to Jesus. So people have come out to hear John preach. They come out to see what John was doing. Some of them came out to be baptized. And you had, you had poor Jewish people. You had rich Jewish people. You had Romans coming out to see what was going on on the banks of the Jordan River. And John kept preaching about the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. And when he finally shows up, John says, that's the one you want to be looking at. Not me. So the people physically had to turn. Look at this individual whom John was preparing the way for. And as they did that, John delivers this message. Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John is saying, 
two very important things that we need to grasp concerning who Jesus is. Because this is the introduction. As John was talking about his greatness and I'm unworthy to to unstrap the, the laces on his sandals, at this point in time, he points directly, this is who Jesus is, this is why he came, and this is why it's important. This is why you need to look to him. He says, behold, he is the lamb. Now, John was a good Jewish boy. He, he preached to Jewish people. And for a Jewish individual, the lamb was significant because it was a sacrifice. As we began, behold, the lion of Judah and the lamb that was slain singing that song is pointing to the sacrifice. And that's what lambs were predominantly used for. You think of shepherds, they were watching the flock that they would take them to the temple to be sacrificed to cover the sins of the people. But this particular land that John is speaking out is to take them back to a time in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Israel, the nation of Israel, the people, uh, the Hebrew people are in bondage. They're in Egypt. And there's a Pharaoh over them that it keeps delivering punishment, keeps putting more work upon them and, and taking things from them. So God sends Moses in and through the elements of 10 plagues, God eventually has the nation of Israel get released from captivity. But if you read through those plagues, it's the very 10th plague, the death of the firstborn son, which John, when he says, behold, the lamb is drawing significance to. And the 10th plague, what the people of Israel had to do is they had to take a lamb without blemish. And they would bring that lamb into their house for a period of days, and then they would sacrifice that lamb. They would take the blood of the lamb and place it over the doorpost, and then they were ordered or commanded to consume the rest of the lamb with their their sandals on their feet and their staff in hand. They were supposed to be ready to respond. Now, the Israelite people, they were slaves at this point in time, so they didn't have a ton of wealth or a ton of resources, so this called them to trust God, that he was going to provide. He was going to do what he said he was going to do, and he's going to release them. He was going to finally break the will of the hard-hearted Pharaoh and say, you can take your people, and you can go and worship. And as they waited for God to do something that night, the Spirit of the Lord, we're told in Exodus, comes in. And when it saw the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, it passed over. But when there was not blood on the doorpost, the wrath of God was brought down upon the nation of Israel and its gods. Now in our world, we're like, well, that's just not right. That's not fair. But God commanded them. He he gave them directions. He revealed in his word, this is what you need to do. And what happened is you see those who heard it and those who did it. So they trusted God. They had faith that God was going to do it. We've never seen this done before, but God was going to do what God was going to say. So we're going to take this lamb and we're going to cover it. And so when John on the banks of the shores of the Jordan says, look, the lamb of God, he's pointing to this image. He says, look, this is the one whose blood is going to be spilled, who's going to be completely consumed, who's going to suffer the wrath of God for you so that it will pass over you when you place your faith, your trust in his sacrifice and his resurrection that you won't get the wrath of God, but instead he will, and you will be completely forgiven. He's the lamb. And even though it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John is pointing to the purpose to which Jesus came, and that's to die for our sins. His blood would be completely spilled out, and his body completely consumed on the cross, where he would cry out to God, why have you forsaken me? That's how much God loves you. As Jesus comes, he is submitting to the will of the Father, that he is going to be the lamb that is perfect 100% without blemish. See, in Exodus, it was by eye they would evaluate and observe the lamb. 
And then they would take the one, the best one they could find, and they would bring it as a sacrifice because God specifically says he doesn't want your leftovers. He doesn't want, you know, your second best. He wants your very best, and he still wants that today. Your very best. Why? Because he gave you and me his very best. All of it. But John is pointing to another significant event in Jewish people. When he says to take away the sin of the world there, it was drawing attention to a passage of Scripture that happens in the book of Leviticus known as the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement was the, the day of celebrating for the Jewish people in which their sins would be atoned or removed or taken away. And what happened in that is the priest would take a bull and offer up for a sin offering for himself so that he could be clean and purified and able to offer the sacrifice to God. And the people of God, while the, the priest was taking the sin offering, would be fasting. They were preparing their hearts and their minds and their bodies to focus on God. They would, in, they would rid the temple of any impurities. And as the priest went and sacrificed the bull, then he would take two goats and he would cast by lot which goat would be offered as a sacrifice and which goat would be let loose in the wilderness. And as he sacrificed the one goat, the blood would be thrown upon the other goat and it would be consumed in the altar. And then he would lay his hand on the goat, goat that would be let go and it would be a transference. And what he would symbolically be doing is transferring all the sins of the nation of Israel onto this goat and then would release it into the wilderness as a sign that their sins had been completely removed. And so when John says he takes away the sin of the world, it's a complete statement. It's not sins, it's sin. It's all of the sin that has ever been and ever will be. He's going to take it all away. He's going to atone for it and completely remove it for those who have faith in who Jesus is. The writer of Hebrews draws our attention that in chapter 10, verse 12, he says, um, or chapter 10, verse 3 to 4 says, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And what Hebrews is telling us is that what the Israelites understood is every single year the Day of Atonement emerged. Just like every single year here in America, we celebrate Super Bowl. But guess what happens the next year? Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Sometimes the next day, right? I wonder who's going to win it next year. Matter of fact, if you watch the Super Bowl, you're going to find out that within 30 minutes after the game's over, they're already talking about if the team that won can repeat. We already move on to the next. And this is what's happening in Israel is they would have this day of atonement. Their sins would be removed, and then you know what happened next year? You got to do it all over again. It was a constant reminder that they had sin in their life, and they could not come before a holy God with that sin. So they had to do it every single year. And so that's what Hebrews is telling us. But Hebrews goes on in verse 12. He says, but when Christ, when Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Once and for all. Jesus said it was finished on the cross. He meant it was completely complete. It's done. And this is what John is pointing to at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He is the lamb to be sacrificed that is going to atone for all of the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future. What we can take from this is, you know, I don't have to debate before God that I deserve this forgiveness. 
I don't have to debate for anyone that I deserve to be forgiven. I don't have to work for God to keep my salvation, the forgiveness I've been given. And I don't have to prove to God that I'm worthy of it. God came to this earth to save me because he loved me. Nothing I could do, nothing I will ever do in the future. It is nothing that I can bring before God to say, yeah, I deserve that. It is simply because God loves you, period. That's why Jesus came. That's who he was. That's why he was lamb. That's why he takes away our sins, because God loves you. And without the blood of the lamb covering your life, just as the Israelites, you will not escape the wrath of God when it comes. It is only by our faith and trust in the blood of Jesus' sacrifice that we can be saved, that he rose from the grave, that we can be forgiven. And if we're not covered by that blood, we're destined to be eternally separated from God. That's who Jesus is, and that's what he did for us. 1 John in chapter 2 and verse 2 says, He being Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In verse 4, or chapter 4 and verse 10, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, and it implies not that we love God first, not that we made the initiative, but that God loved us first. And that He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means Jesus was basically your sin stunt double. When it came time for you to be blamed for all the sins that you have ever done in your life and ever going to do, Jesus comes on the cross and puts out his arms and says, Father, blame me. Give it to me. I'll take it. Now, I don't know about you, but I have yet to find anybody who will take my blame when I've done something wrong. If you're a sibling, you have a brother or sister, you ever tried to blame brother or sister for something you did? Do they always take it? If they did, wow, you had a good brother or sister. Man, my, my brother would rat me out every single time. Jesus does the exact opposite. This is what makes him the propitiation. See, God already knows everything about us. He already knows all of our sin, all of our faults, all of those things we don't want anybody else to know about. He already knows it all. There's not a thing in your life that is hidden from him. And he loves you so much, he sent Jesus to stand in your place to take his wrath and your judgment so you could be redeemed. It's because he loved us, not because we loved him, and he comes seeking after us. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's, it's Jesus. There's a song we sing to our kids every single night, and I'd like for us to do it. I know I'm not the worship leader, but... Um, <clears throat> I'll do my best. I know you know it, though. Jesus loves me, this I know. Sing along. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. Yes, loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. See, when Satan comes and attacks you and tries to belittle you 
And Satan may have some right in it because, you know, he's good at bringing up memories we want to forget, isn't he? But just speak this truth. That may have happened. I may have done that. But Jesus loves me. God's word tells me so, and I'm going to live in that love instead of what you're trying to put me in. I'm going to live in that. See, when we live in the love of God and the love of Christ, when we allow that to come out of our life, that's what impacts this world. It's not new politicians. It's not new legislation. It's not new laws. It's not vetoing old laws. It's the love of God that is going to change this world. And what John does in the banks is even though people were coming out to see them, he reminded them over and over and over again, it's not me you want, it's the love of God, and there it is, look, Jesus. That's what people need in this world. He came to bring hope. He came to bring love. He came to bring forgiveness and mercy and grace and all the things we don't deserve, even on our best day. He came to give it as a free gift. Bible tells us in Ephesians, it says, you were dead in the trans- trespasses and sins. And, and Paul's writing to believers. He's wanting them to come to this understanding that I, I feel that God wants us to understand this moment. You were dead. You were done. It was, it was a done deal. You were in your trespasses and sin. That's where you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of mind, and were by nature children of wrath like rest of mankind. Says, this is where you were. This is where God found you. You were a child of wrath. You were an enemy to the kingdom of God. This is where you were. And then the very next thing is, but God, turn the page. This is where God found you. But God in his rich mercy, because of his great love which with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were in our sins, even when we were children of wrath and sons of disobedience, God made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Again, in case you're in first time, Paul writes it again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. You didn't bring anything to the table of holiness. You brought your sin and your disobedience and your wrathfulness and, 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 and yourself, your, your, uh, your unperfection, your blemishes. You brought that before God. It's not your own doing, but it is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Praise God. I hope you're thankful we don't have to go before a holy God with our resume. We don't have to try to say, God, I I really deserve to be saved. I really deserve to be in heaven. And if you're living that sort of lie, where you're trying to live by your good works, you're going to fail miserably in the end. Because we all have blemishes and we all have stains. But what John proclaimed is that Jesus is all we need. He's it. He is all we need. Jesus 
is all our heart longs for. All of us long to be a good person. All of us long for fulfillment. All of us long to live a life that has purpose. This is what Jesus comes to give us. All of these things is only found in Jesus. Finally, Jesus is here to fulfill our greatest need. And if you're like me, I get so distracted by thinking I need money or cars or electronics or some sort of toy that goes boom or, um, you know, I get so distracted by the world. I need, I need a new shirt. I need new pants. I need new clothes. I need new shoes. I need all this stuff. But the reality is all I really need is to be restored back to an intimate relationship with my father. That's it. And that's all anybody needs in this world. But if you look at the world, the world is great at creating static and disruption to this truth. You need this to be happy. You need this to be happy. You need this for people to like you. The foundation of Jesus Christ is no, you don't. All I need is Jesus. That's all I need. As John proclaims, behold, there's a couple of things I want us to take away this morning. How, well, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? Okay. Behold, again, is look, right? So it calls us to tune our hearts to who Jesus is. It calls us to tune our hearts to God. A couple of years ago, we, uh, Jamie and I got a, a newer vehicle. It wasn't new, but it was newer to us, so it was a new vehicle to us. And uh, it was the first time I had had a car that had a satellite radio. You know, like serious, I mean, it's seriously awesome, right? And so we're in our car, and the thing I, I, I didn't understand about satellites, I knew about satellite radio, but the thing about I didn't understand is you could go anywhere and you never lost the station. Like we go under an, an underpass and then maybe click out for a second or we're changed from uh, one spot to another and it click out just maybe a second, but it always come back. And so we could travel from southern Missouri to northern Missouri and from mid-Missouri to, to Alabama and you would, could listen to the same station all the time. And I thought, this is the greatest thing ever. And then about two years into having this car, I get in, I start it up and it says your serious radio is no longer available. That's a, that's a mean trick, isn't it? So I went online trying to figure out, well, how do I, oh, I got to have my serious. I got I to I have it. And so how do I get it back? And I, they said they wanted me to pay them. I said, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. And, and so I had, I had two choices. I could just say, okay, I don't need radio anymore and just drive around quietly in the car, which I do it on occasion. I recommend doing that sometimes just to turn everything off and just drive and um, or I could go to the FM, AM, FM station, and I could begin what I did before Sirius came into my life, and I could start channel surfing, right? And that's what everyone normally does anyway. And so I did that. But if, if, if you do that, you, you know that when you travel, like if I go from Springfield to St. Louis, I cannot listen to the Christian stations I find in Springfield through my car radio. I have to find something else when I get closer to St. Louis. And so I have to start hitting that stupid seek button and trying to find something that is listenable. And we try to stay with Christian stuff, particularly if the kids are in the car. But you're searching and you're searching. And eventually, what happens when you get out of range of a station? What do you start to hear? Now, oh, I hate, anybody just, let's uh, confess, anybody hate static? Even if it's just like that little bit you hear it coming through, it's like, all right, it's time to start searching for a new station, right? I mean, that's the way I am. I mean, it just may just be a one shot of it. Oh, there it goes. Um, but once that comes through, you, you've got to make a decision. 
The thing is, a lot of us, we've been walking with Jesus and walking with God and been in our relation for so long that we've got so much static of the world coming in, we're not able to hear the Word of God. We are compromising the truth or lack of truth the world has to say as the truth of God's Word. For example, it is amazing how many Christians are divided on the issue of abortion. I'm sorry, but God knows that baby before it was formed in the womb. There's no debate when it comes to God. And yet Christians debate about this issue because we have got so much static of this world coming in that we are not tuning our hearts to God. When Jesus showed up, what did John do? Look. They were all infatuated with John, but as soon as Jesus shows up on the scene, what does John do? Look, he's the one you need. He's the one you want. Tune your heart to him. So how do we tune our hearts to God? Another thing that amazes me, and I like statistics. You're probably going to learn this as we um, get to know each other more and more. It amazes me how many people are in church and call themselves children of God who are not in God's word. And I'm not trying to step on your toes if this is you, because I don't know if it's you. I'll look at everybody just so, you know, I'm not escaping anybody. I don't know if it's you or not. You do, though. You know if this is the only time you are tuning in to the Word of God is between 1035 and whenever Pastor Mike shuts up. You know it. And so if this is the only spiritually healthy meal you're getting all week long, how nourished is your spiritual soul right at this moment? If you want to find out, here's what you can do. Eat one time this week and don't eat any more until the same time next week. And see how that affects your body. Then you'll have a glimpse of how this is affecting your heart and your soul and your mind. We've got to tune into the Word of God. You've got to be in the Word of God on your own. I understand there's stuff in here you may not understand. Guess what? I've been preaching and teaching the Word of God for uh, closing in on 20 years here in a little while. And there's stuff in here I still don't understand. That's okay. But it doesn't give me an excuse not to be in it. So just read it. And if a question comes up, man, what a great opportunity to come to a Bible study or a church and like, hey, I was reading this and what does that mean? And if I don't know, I'm going to tell you straight out, I don't know. But man, what? be in the Word of God. Feed your soul. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Talk about it. <clears throat> Tune your heart in. Second thing is to trust. John was calling the people on the shores to trust Jesus. I mean, I've understood everything John was saying. But they were calling, being called to trust him. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. It calls for faith. Because sometimes we read something, we hear something, we don't understand, we don't like it. But God never promises we're going to like what he has to say. 
He's continuing this work of what the Bible calls sanctification and setting us apart in this world. And we just got to trust him. Finally, how do we do this? Tune, trust. And the last thing we see that John did is he testified. People were coming out to see John because something like that hadn't happened in like 400 years. Dressed in camel's hair, reminding him of prophets of old like Elijah and Elisha. But if you look at John's statement, when people come out, who are you? Why are you doing this? What's going on? John would repeatedly point to Jesus. He's coming. He's coming. He's going to be awesome. His glory is going to be like nothing you've ever seen. He's coming because John was trying to prepare them. He was testifying about the greatness and the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so today we are given the same commission in America, Stratford, Missouri, to testify about the greatness and the glory of God and not to prepare him for his arrival, but for his return. Because he's coming. He's coming, and he saved a wretch like me, and I don't know why he saved me, but he did, and I'm his, and he's coming for me, and I want him to come for you too. Do you know him? He's coming. The Bible states very clearly that if anybody does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will be lost, and they will be left. greatness of God's love is he doesn't want that for you here today if you're here and you're at a place where you're like I don't know if I have Jesus I don't know if I if if I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior God is calling out to you right now to give you this understanding why I am a sinner we're all sinners no one is righteous no one seeks after God but God came seeking after me And so I admit I'm a sinner before a holy God and I need the blood of the Lamb to cover my sins and I believe Jesus was the Lamb of God. He died for my sins. He rose again that I could be completely forgiven. And here in a moment, I'm going to stand in here and I'm going to invite you to come and make that be known. See, the Bible says without Jesus, you're lost. But because God loved you, He sent His only Son and whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's what's before you today. Are you going to be here or a doer? If you're here this morning, you've already done that, then we've got an incredible task ahead of us. God planted Harvest Hill here. He brought my family here under the conditions that we glorify His name and reach the lost. That's what we're here for. We're not here to, to pad our budgets. We're not here to get more people on the membership roll. We're here to see more people saved into the eternal kingdom of God. And it begins by you all taking the name of Jesus with you. You see, you're the greatest advertisement, and I'm the greatest advertisement for the glory of God. Actually, that's what God has given us, the ambassadors to the kingdom of God. We are the walking advertisements of who God is and who Jesus is. And so people are to look to us and to see Jesus and experience the love of God. And so I commission you to go out and testify. If nothing else, be that weird person that starts singing Jesus loves me in the elevator. Be that person at the gas station that after you've finished filling up, before you leave, the person across from you just, hey, just want to let you know God loves you. That's all you got to do. You may start a conversation. (laughs) You may get a dirty look. We don't get to judge how people respond. Some people like what John said. Some people didn't. 
All we are called to do is put it before him and let the Spirit do its work. That's it. And God is placing before you salvation today if you haven't accepted it. I invite the worship team to come up. We're going to sing a song. <laughs> I love this song. Jesus paid it all. As we leave here this morning, it's just a reminder. He paid it all. I am completely forgiven. And maybe you just need to lay that down at the, at, at the foot of the cross this morning. You're saying, Lord, I've been dwelling in my sin, and you paid it all. I can let this go. But however God's led you to respond, I invite you to come. Let's pray.